Welcome to the Law Firm Growth Podcast, where we share the latest tips, tactics, and strategies for scaling your practice from the top experts in the world of growing law firms. Are you ready to take your practice to the next level? Let's get started. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Law Firm Growth Podcast. I'm your host, as always, Jan Roos, and I am here today with Laura Tolhook, who is the founder of Essential HR. And I know you guys have been getting a lot of really great feedback from the episodes that have related to hiring, which is one of the biggest sorts of leverages you can have in your law practice. So I'm super excited to have Laura here because you've got some really interesting theories on not only hiring, but developing your people and also having your place be someplace that people want to work. So thanks for coming on the show, Laura. Thanks so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. All right. Awesome. So I had to stop myself in our pre-call because you <laughs> mentioned something that was really, really interesting and I wanted to dig into it for the first time. So you were talking about, and this is the first time I've ever heard this term before, but cultivating an employer brand. Can you tell us a little bit more about what that is and how you guys came upon this concept? Yeah, absolutely. I wish we made it up. Unfortunately, we've kind of just you know, use the term, but we didn't, we don't make up that concept because if you think about brand and we've heard brand so many times, you got to have a brand for your business. You got, your brand has to be A, B, or C. And we think about the large companies like Starbucks or Target or Southwest Airlines. And immediately we have these characteristics of who they are as a company and, and their brand. But I want you to think instead of thinking their customer brand, I want you to think of their employer brand. So when you think about Starbucks or Target or Southwest Airlines, what do you think about as them as an employer? What do you know about them as an employer? And what have you heard about them as an employer? That is what cultivates their employer brand. So now we're gonna scale that down to our small business environment. Kids might be thinking, well, I only have seven people or I only have 10 people. Why do I need to have an employer brand? Well, at the end of the day, we as small business owners are competing for the same top talent as these larger organizations. And we need to know who we are as a small business and who we are as an employer in order to really be able to sell ourselves to these top talent individuals that we may be recruiting and in competition with from, from large organizations or competitors down the street. Yeah. And it's really interesting too, because I think like one of these situations and this is actually going to set the stage for a lot of what I had planned to talk about, but like some of these things that people kind of consider later things to establish things like corporate culture, you might think, Hey, look, this isn't something I have to really look into until I have 50 or hundred employees. But the reality is a lot of small law firms out there, a lot of them listen to this podcast and well, I'd probably say the other way around. <laughs> a lot of people listen to this podcast are small law firms. I wish I could say we had every single small law firm listen to this podcast, but uh, I digress. But anyway, a lot of these people are going to be familiar with the concept, especially if somebody ever worked with big law. If I say the words Kirkland and Ellis, you know what that brand represents. You know what it's like. I would say Paul Weiss, you know what you have an idea of what it's like to work there and we know what a career there will look like. And again, to your point, if you're attracting the top talent, then you know that's who you're up against, whether you realize it or not. So let's kind of like, you know, uh, zoom in a little bit to, to somebody who's potentially encountering, you know, either a hiring challenge for the first time. Like, how do you really start building the blocks to get that brand together? So I think the first thing you have to come to terms with is what is your employer brand? And you talk about how, you know, a lot of companies when they're 50 people plus start building an employee culture. Well, you don't need to build an employee culture. You already have one. So whether you know it or not, whether it was intentional or not, your organization already has a business culture. So part of understanding your employee brand, identifying it and amplifying it 
is first understanding who you already are and where you want to go with your organization. And that could be your physical workspace, your team environment, your mentorship, the, the type of culture you have, the type of perks you offer. There's all types of things that work into that employer brand. So identifying those things is, is really important in order to, to almost have your elevator pitch of who you are as an employer. Yeah. And, you know, if it's not too much to ask, is there any sort of like an exercise or like, you know, the, the concrete step that somebody could take to get an idea of what things that might already be there are for their, their firm? Oh, well, you're taking, you're taking the surprise away. Um, I actually have a great download uh, that we've created to help small businesses identify and amplify their employer brand, which we can certainly make available to your listeners. Okay. Well, we'll get <laughs> now I, this is where the jazz approach to interviewing uh, ends up biting you in the butt sometimes, but that's fantastic. Um, but I guess, yeah, like a little preview. Okay. So there are steps that you can take to maybe find out what these things are. Yeah. And um, it's kind of interesting too, though, because this this kind of reminds me of uh, I was talking with another friend of mine. And this is a person who was in you know the, they they ran a marketing agency, and uh, to your point also, it's like you know a lot of people think about this stuff maybe a little bit too late. So they found themselves in a position where they had a couple of toxic members of the team that were bringing not only the performance and where they were working down, but the people adjacent to them, and they they almost had to cut these guys out, like you know mm-hmm. whatever, like a. like a infection or something like that. And it ended up being super costly because, you know, it's, it's tough to replace these people. So I guess like, what are sort of the times when you see people coming to you for help with this or like, what's, what's the right time to start having this conversation with yourself? Well, when we first started Essential HR, uh, the idea behind it was I, I was working for some pretty large organizations and doing HR from, you know, corporate, from the corporate side. Uh, But I had a lot of friends and family who had, well, I grew up in a family of small business and they were calling about, you know, how do I deal with this? Or Laura, what what do I do about this employee? What are my options? And so what I realized is that you don't have to be 500 people uh, on your team in order to have problems that you need the help of an HR expert for. And so when we go about uh, talking about this, I would say you could have three people on your team and still have issues that are difficult to navigate. And you can have 13 people on your team and never have a problem. It really isn't a, there's really no cut and dry saying, if we have five, we're good. If we have 15, it's going to be too much. There's always going to be issues that come up that are new to us for the first time. So having somebody to go to, whether it's a business coach, whether it's, you know, an HR expert, whether it's an employment lawyer, is really somebody who's going to be on your side to help you deal with these types of, of situations. And yeah, to, to give a little bit more color to like the specific kinds of situations, I guess, like, what are the common things that will come up when somebody's reaching out to you guys for the first time? Oh, it could be everything from, you know, employment related situations to let's be honest, as small business, we are already so busy that all of a sudden you need to hire somebody and, you know, we have zero, zero time to do that whole recruitment search. So people reach out to us to help them with the recruitment search onboarding programs, for example. So what happens when you bring on a new team member, you've put all your time and effort into the recruitment and finding this person, does your onboarding program solidify that new team members belief that they made the right choice to join your team, as well as the whole idea of performance management? What do we do when person A has, you know, posted on social media in a way that affects another team members, uh, you know, uh, characteristics or, or even the company's, the company's reputation. 
to things like, you know, person B had a, a second accident in a company vehicle. What are my options? Oh, man. <laughs> There's a lot of things that come up that we kind of nav- help, help managers and, and business owners navigate through. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. So, okay. So it could kind of be all over the board, but um, yeah, you're also bringing up another thing that's kind of top of mind right now, which is uh, kind of these challenges related to hiring specifically for the small business owner mm-hmm. and to kind of give like a little bit of context. So I, you know, if I, if you don't mind, I'll, I'll kind of run through a situation that we've been seeing pretty frequently yeah. and I'd love to have some, some, um, I mean, maybe, yes. <laughs> maybe have your advice on the show, but um, super common situation that we've seen a couple of different times. So um, in the course of working with some more clients, they've had the situation where they're a little bit overwhelmed um, specifically around hiring people for intake, for example. So they either have a office manager, paralegal, you know, front desk person, whatever you want to call it, that might've either not been great for the role or they have moved into more of a fulfillment perspective. So, I mean, especially with the stuff that we're doing a lot of is uh, state planning stuff. So it's like a lot of this is document preparation, that kind of stuff. So a lot of times we've, we've seen some, some clients of ours have some false starts and basically I don't think it's through any fault of their own, but you know, it's obviously you know tremendous variability in the amount of people that you're getting onto your team. And especially as you talk, I'm realizing this a little bit more, what ends up happening after they get on the team. And I think like we've, we've spoken with a couple of people on the show about kind of the importance of um, really filtering well in the interview process, but not as much as I would have liked on, you know, what to have happen after people end up getting on the team. So I know kind of a broad question, but um, what kind of stuff are, are, are you recommending people have? And you mentioned kind of the, you know, reaffirming that they're in the right place, but can we kind of riff on that for a little bit? And, you know, how do you, how do you really get somebody to have the right start after you've made that hire? Yeah. So as you mentioned, it takes a lot of time to get somebody on the team. It's a lot of emotion from the hiring manager. It's a lot of emotion from the the new hire. And so we've, you know, made that great offer. We've put our best foot forward in the interview. We've done our due diligence in, in that hiring decision. And now what often happens, because again, we're busy, I'm not saying that all these things magically happen with all the extra time we have, because not many of us actually have a lot of extra time, but we bring the person on board and we give them a great first hour orientation. Here's so-and-so, they're your teammate, here's your desk, thanks so much, we're excited to have you, these are all the great plans we have for you, and then you know, maybe we take them out for lunch to get to know them a little bit better, but by the afternoon of the first day, they're sitting at a fairly empty desk with you know two pens and a stack of maybe policies, operating procedures, an employee handbook, who knows, wondering what's going what, to, what they're going to do with the next three hours of their life, because they were just told here, read these documents. And the day just drags on because they're now thinking, what am I going to do from two o'clock to four o'clock? Cause I'm done reading the documents. And we have this disconnect where we're so excited to have them on board and the individual wants to start contributing as, as humans, I think with any job that Uh, most of us have started, we want to contribute, we want to make an impact as quickly as possible. And oftentimes our onboarding process actually hinders that and makes people feel awkward and not knowing what their next step is. So having an onboarding process that, again, is going to take time up front to build it out, um, but that really solidifies the belief of that individual that they made the right hiring choice, whether that's hiring, handing off the implementation of the onboarding to somebody who actually has the opportunity to really bring that individual on board and make them feel welcome because we're not all extroverts. 
the hiring manager might not be an extrovert. They might not be the person who's going to show the organization in the within the best light. There might be another person on your team who is that person who loves meeting new people, who really integrates people into the community. That might be a person you want to lead your onboarding because they might be the, the better choice for really showing people what the culture and the team is like. You face some pretty interesting situations because a lot of the times you're talking about that crazy, huge fortune 500 company, you got a, you know, director of new impressions or some crazy stuff. But like, you know, when you're talking about these five, 10 person companies, sometimes Mm -hmm. it's, it's, you know, you might not have that be a full-time role for someone. So I think that's a really great idea to kind of have somebody who, who might not have this be their full-time role, but it's something that they'll, they kind of work into their job description or like, how do you usually see that play out? I don't even think it's a job description thing. I think it's just, is it the right person? to be the the person who onboards individuals. So maybe it's not from a technical standpoint, but maybe your administrative assistant is just a welcoming, warm individual who goes out of her way to make other people feel included and special. That might be the person that you want to be the mentor or the onboarder for your organization. She's not going to, he or she is not going to be the technical trainer, but they are going to be the cultural cultural onboarder. So having that mentor, having that buddy, for lack of a better term, who's going to make sure that that you're checking in with the new hire. How's day one going? How's hour one? How's hour six going? Can we go for lunch? Uh, This is what's going to happen tomorrow. And have that person to bounce those ideas off of so that they have somebody they can connect with easily and quickly within the organization. Yeah. And that's so interesting too, because it's like, you know, you always hear that phrase, people don't leave bad companies, they leave bad managers. And maybe it's just they leave bad cultures that they don't have anyone that they feel like is on their side. Right. So, I mean, I can kind of imagine how helpful that could be, but like just to kind of zoom out and, and connect it to what ends up happening when you get this settled. I mean, could we maybe do a little bit of like a, you know, Goovis and Gallant style, like what happens when this works out versus what happens when, you know, this isn't set up properly? Sure. So, if you do, if you Google it a little bit, you'll realize there's some pretty stark statistics out there that say, say a person who is onboarded well, so whose training is implemented, whose follow-up, who's got a communication protocol in place within their organization, individuals who are onboarded well have a greater chance of staying long-term within the organization. That's past the 90 days, that's into the years. But the other thing that happens when you onboard well is you have people who are up to speed more quickly. So they're able to produce more quickly. They're able to be effective more quickly. So though it takes more time upfront, it's gonna pay off in efficiency and in uh, productive work. On the flip side, if you don't onboard well, you have, you know, John Smith sitting in the corner trying to figure out what to do with two hours, not not comfortable enough to ask anybody what his next steps are. And eventually John Smith gets up and running and eventually he, you know, figures out what he's supposed to do and starts contributing, but it's not as quick, it's not as efficient, and he's not as well integrated into how your operation runs. Okay. And then especially connecting it back to lawyers too. Like if you can put the the amount of money that you guys are billing per hour, it's probably pretty tangible <laughs> when you can cut that, that thing down to get somebody up to full capacity. And um, one of the things I wanted to ask too, and I'm sure there's probably not a hard and fast answer to this, but I always, uh, I always used to tell, well, this is, I don't know who actually told me this in the first place. I think this is one of the coaches we worked with, but um, 
I was always set with the expectation that when you hire people, it's going to take a lot more time before <laughs> your time is going to be a lot more filled before it ends up being freed up. Yes. But as far as like the onboarding process, like what do you see? And if it's not an exact number, maybe a range, like how, how much you know to, to really make a good first impression on somebody, how long should you be planning for? So that's an interesting question because we've built a lot of onboarding processes and we've built a lot of hands-on onboarding. So a lot of face-to-face communication, interaction, and we've built a lot of self taught onboarding uh, so that it's not somebody with hand in, uh, standing beside the individual for a week straight. So it really is going to be determined based off of what you want it to look like. But I would say in the first day, there's definitely a probably 75% of the day you'll want somebody with this individual followed by, and that would go down throughout the days. So maybe day two, you set up some interviews with other members of the team so that they can get a better understanding of what their role is, how their role interacts with them. And then all the way down to once all of the training is done and they should be more fairly self-sufficient, but it could, it could be anywhere from investing, I would say 20 plus hours to full eight hours a day for, you know, three months, if you wanted it to be that way, which I don't think anybody does, Uh, but it really depends on the culture of the organization and what you want included in that onboarding. Yeah. Gotcha. And I, I want to actually add something too. I mean, just, uh, I, mean, I hate to be too topical, but <laughs> you know, as far as the times go too, I imagine some of this stuff is, is harder to pull off when there's no physical proximity because of the situation we find ourselves in as a, as a, I mean, I guess we're in the U S and Canada. So as a continent at the moment, so, um, how have you guys uh, been kind of adapting to that or like, what kind of recommendations are you making for people who might be onboarding fully remotely at this point? Yeah. You know what? Not, I'll be honest with you. There's not a lot that changes. Uh, the only difference is that we have to learn how to w- work through those those Zoom calls and and those go to meetings. Uh, so it's still very similar. I actually had to do an onboarding about six weeks ago um, with somebody who was where I was remote and they were not. And it's it's the same type of connection that you're looking for. It's the same type of information that you're providing. Uh, you're setting, you know, we set up Zoom calls with other members of the team that she would be interacting with so that she got to know the team in that same in that same sense. But at the end of the day, whatever HR system or whatever HR protocols you go to, it all boils down to one thing, and that's communication. And especially in this environment where so many of us are remote, you can't under-communicate. It's almost impossible in these types of environments to under-communicate with your teams. Oftentimes, many businesses struggle with communication within the, its internal culture anyways. Um, not many organizations will really stand on their, their platform and say, we've nailed this communication thing down. We've got it 100%. We're all striving to be better at communication. And especially when we start turning to remote teams, to remote onboarding, we have to double down on that communication. Right. And I can kind of see that too. It's like, it's like when that old Warren Buffett quote, it's like, it's not until the tide goes out that you can see who wasn't wearing swim trunks. It's like, <laughs> maybe some of these bad communication habits were just kind of shored up by people who had, you know, be, well, I wouldn't call it a crutch, but the convenience of being able to be physically with someone. So it, it kind of just forces you to take a, a, a better look on it. And I also want to add this too. Like, I think so much of this has parallels with the marketing process and the client intake process for law firms, just because, you know, if you have, you know, everyone is concerned about that first 
first impression as far as somebody walking in the door to retain you for your services, right? So, but if you have an SOP for you, know, you know, when the when they get their cup of mineral water, but you're throwing people into the, this, the desk in the corner and saying, "Go get them, champ!" Like, yeah, yeah you got to kind of think about uh, you know, a lot of this stuff like holistically. We have these SOPs. We have these customer service expectations. We have these client onboarding, and the way that we deal with a crisis with our clients and our customers is usually very well thought out. Yet when we have internal customers, our our teams, and when we have internal client issues within our teams or new hires, we don't approach it with the same sense of urgency that we do our external customers. And that, if we think about our our teams as our internal customers and, and how we approach those situations when people have issues or when people are going through things, it really helps us frame better how to manage our internal teams. Yeah, that's really interesting. And there's also kind of like that that sort of tertiary connection where it's that old saw, you know, uh, your frontline staff will treat your clients the way that you treat your frontline staff, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's I think there's there's kind of a lot of lot of synergies to kind of look into this maybe earlier than people have been. So, I want to switch gears a little bit to kind of employee development, right? Yeah. So, and that's the thing too, like it's obviously uh, a big step for a lot of, uh, a lot of law firm owners, especially with that first hire to get people who might be 80% as good as them in a a given domain, getting through that delegation, but eventually getting them to the point where they're not only as good as you were when you made that hire, but ultimately better than you were because they have the time and the focus. So let's kind of talk about like, you know, employee development, like, you know, pass that onboarding process. How often, I mean, how, how quickly do you want to get you know, sort of metrics in place? And and how do you kind of advise people get started on that? Oh, that's one of my favorite questions. I think that there is no better time to give somebody the objectives of their role and the key performance indicators, their metrics than day one. Because at the end of the day, it comes back to that communication, that clarification. And if, you know, if I think about myself, when do I want to know what's expected of me within a new role? I want to know on day one, I might not be able to hit it right away, but I want to know what the expectations are for my performance. So you could go even as far as saying when you provide the job offer letter, it comes with the a job description with the key performance indicators and the objectives on it. Because at the end of the day, we don't want to hold back that information, especially if it's a written document. We don't want to hold that back from somebody knowing, well, we could have told you what we expected of you, you know, back in September, but we waited till January. Yeah. I don't think that's a fair assessment of somebody, right. you know, bringing somebody on. <laughs> yeah. And then basically, so even if they know it, I don't think there's too much of a downside too, because it's obviously like the expectation is that somebody is going to take some time to ramp up, but if they know where the, you know, the end goal is, it's going to allow them to better orient to, you know, how to get there. Right. Absolutely. And if you have been providing that within the interview process, for example, or the job offer, you might be able to weed out a few candidates who say, oh, you need me to do X, Y, Z in this amount of time. Mm. Well, it takes me three times as long. So perhaps this isn't the place for me. Yeah. And also another huge parallel. Um, I'm actually thinking about a uh, podcast we recently recorded with um, Ricky Walter and Gary Winters of Lavex. They were talking about the importance of getting stuff deeper in the process from you know the actual intake process. So the questions that are coming from the consultation, bringing those all the way up to the first call that the frontline staff are working with. So some interesting parallels here, like you know taking those those core concepts and moving them further into your hiring process could you know prevent some big problems down the line. Nothing um, under the sun. <laughs> yeah, it's at the end of the day too i was actually thinking about this the other day too it was like um you know there's always that uh, that old quote um trust the process and i was kind of thinking i almost was going to record a podcast on this that was just called trust 
process. Cross out the the. <laughs> it's just when you're taking a you know a, a serious look at things, it's just I mean that, that's why it's it's useful to have people to focus on this all the time, like you do, right? Yeah, so- we we have a client in the exactly that in the PR space, and uh, she was really competing for a, a talent right out of right out of university, and and she said, I really need this girl. She's amazing. I want her on my team. But I offered her the job and she said she wanted to wait till Monday because she had a new another job offer, another job interview that she wanted to attend to just to make sure that she was leaving no stone unturned in her career search right out of university. And so she emailed us. She's like, I just I really, really want her. We said, you know what? You have everything in place. You are a fantastic organization. You've showed her all of your cards um, and what you can present. You have a great structure and recruitment flow, a great candidate experience. So just, just wait. And literally this, this young lady emailed her half an hour after her other interview and just said, you know, taking this other interview only solidified my belief that going with you was the right choice. And that all comes back again to that employer brand. What are you putting out into the world as who you are as an employer? Yeah. And there's like the win-wins keep stacking up here too, because it's like, you know, getting the clarity for yourself on the KPIs also shows what kind of company you are, and what kind of transparency you have. Cause it's like, you know, a lot of the, the, the negative things we've spoken about potentially happening. It's like, you know, you, it doesn't matter if the, you, you like the name on the door, if you're, you know, if you're Johnny in the corner <laughs> on the first week, it's not going to be a great of a situation. Yeah. Uh, all right. So kind of going back on the development stuff. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we have developments that go great every once in a while, you'll find that rock star. but you know, how do you kind of suss out? where people are at as far as their kind of potential and like how how does that process usually look do do you believe that you can switch somebody from being kind of a steady player to an a player or you know vice versa what kind of coaching do you need for people that are you know really really good okay so that was a lot of questions (laughs) which one do i want to choose you know let's talk about our superstars because i think sometimes we forget about our superstars we forget about those people are, who are doing well and we kind of put them off to the side in the whole performance management process. We just, oh, just keep doing what you're doing. We really need to figure out what makes people tick. So why is our superstar a superstar? What are they doing What are and what are we doing that is helping them be successful in their role? So maybe that high competence and high commitment that they have to the organization requires us to have you know, very little support and little direction. But what if, what if all of a sudden we changed somehow and we became micromanaging with them? What would happen to that engagement and that, and that performance? It would probably, you know, fall pretty quickly. But what is it that makes them tick? What is it that really keeps them motivated? And I think if we can't figure out what keeps them motivated, we're not going to be able to keep them. Mm-hmm. So there's there's a book um, I'm sure you've heard of it, Five Love Languages. They actually have the five levels of of appreciation within a workplace uh, Interesting. And it's a great read because it takes it down really to the basics of why are people motivated and what, what motivates people and how do people feel appreciated? Because, you know, maybe you are, all you need is someone to say, Hey, great job. Really appreciate that. And you're like, yes, that filled my cup, but maybe you go to the next person and you say that and they're like, okay, cool, whatever. But maybe if you wrote it in a note, it was a written communication that had such uh, such an impact on them that that made the difference. Or, you know, somebody brings you a coffee in the morning, you're like, cool, they, they got me a coffee. But somebody else, you provided that to them and they just felt the impact and, and felt appreciated from it. And we all have these ways that we feel appreciated. And so those superstars, we have to figure out what makes them tick. Because at the end of the day, even a superstar wants to feel appreciated. 
Right. And you bring up a couple of really interesting things here. So we've got basically, you know, the, I mean, is this technically, is, <laughs> I'll kind of out myself as being a bit of a sappy romantic, but I have actually read the five love languages. Yeah. Is this a separate book or is this uh, um, within the, uh, within that book? It's yeah, been a it's while. Gary Chapman, five languages of appreciation in the workplace. And it, it goes right in line with that five love languages. Um, you know, it takes a little bit away from the physical touch aspect, which <laughs> yeah, I'd imagine, <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's very much in line with the, the five love languages. And it's just, it's a very easy read. And it's so simple to start comprehending how people appreciate it, feel appreciated differently within the workplace. Yeah. So you meant we have, that's something that we want to know. Um, I know you just mentioned some things, this was kind of in passing, but it seemed like these were things that you, you had a really good idea of, uh, from, from a hiring perspective competence and commitment to the company. Are these things that you're filtering for? Or like, how do you gauge that from somebody that's coming in? So whenever you have somebody coming in who is new to a new to a role, new to your company, they're going to have a high commitment, but they might not understand what is going on within your organization. So there is going to be a little bit more hands-on that's needed, even with a, a great performer. They're still going to want to know the basics of what your organization is like. So leaving them in a corner is not going to motivate them. Giving them a little bit of work to do to get them feeling apart and being able to help them, you know, ask the questions that they don't know the answers to within your organization is really going to get them ramping up quickly. And as they ramp up, they're going to realize there might be gaps between their last organization and this organization, and that there's more that they need to know. So we can't, even with a star performer who's new to our team, just let them go at it because we still need to have a little bit more touch points with those individuals. But as they grow within the organization, we're going to see not only their competence within you know, that individual business grow, we're going to see the commitment grow as well. And those star performers, again, they have that high commitment and high competence, and that's why they do so well. But if you micromanage a high commitment and high competent person, you're going to, like I said, you're going to plummet that, that engagement that they have in the same sense that if you don't give high touch communication and high touch um, motivation to somebody who's new, they're also going to think, what is going on in this company? Like nobody talks to me. Nobody cares what I'm doing. Nobody's even checking in on me to see if, if I'm doing anything for that matter. Right. And would you, would it be fair to say, are these like fixed traits or will these move fluidly as somebody, you know, ends up growing into a role? Yeah, this is kind of taken, taken from situational leadership, which is, which is a, a great course, but it, it's not a fixed trait. It's going to move as an individual's skills in a certain area are challenged and improved. So you might have somebody who's a star performer and you give them a a really new task, something that's new to them and a challenge for them. And they might be able to take some of what they did in their, in their star performer role, but this new task, they're going to need a whole new set of touch points for. So if you give them a completely new task, you know, and you give your star performer, hey, I need you to build this computer, they're, they're going to attempt it, but it's going to be very demotivating because they don't have the touch points. If you say, hey, I need you to build this computer and here's the steps that I need you to take in order to do so because you've never done so before, it's a lot more motivating for that individual. Now, if you give your, your IT guy, hey, I need you to build this computer and here's the steps I need you to take, they're going to look at you and think you're crazy. Of course, I know how to do this. I'm your IT guy. But really depends on on what task that they're doing at that time, 
depends on the touch points you want to give them for the motivation, for the encouragement, for the managing aspect of it. Okay. Yeah. That's very interesting too. Cause it's like, you know, I always ask about like the fluid versus fixing. Cause it's like, there are certain things that people talk about often. And I'm actually very curious is like, are there any sort of personality tests that you put more or less weight into as far as people that are coming into an organization or how to lead people? Uh, I do have a few that I, I look at, but I always find that personality tests, we use, we usually can understand them and use them to our advantage in an organization once we already know people. So when we have a, some kind of characteristic or a workplace test to a new person, we don't know them. We can't attribute the characteristics on a, on a written document to who they are. Whereas once they are part of our, our community for three, six months, a year, and then we see that psychological profile, we say, ah, that's why they do right. this. Or that's why when this situation occurred, you know, <laughs> I always give the example, we used um, StrengthsFinder within, within our group of our team here at Essential HR. And my one team member, she, I always was amazed because I would say something and all of a sudden it was done like two days later. And it was literally a passing thought in my brain and she executed it. And then once we did strengths finder, I realized one of her strengths, the, the explanation of it was that she had such a strong sense of loyalty. She could never leave things undone. So I had to make it very clear, like, this is important and this is not. <laughs> right, right. This it's a double-edged is, sword. <laughs> this, this thought is passing. Please disregard it. Right. Uh, because she had such a strong sense of, of getting things done and loyalty. So, but with just reading that as a document before I hired her, I've been like, okay, that's cool. That's an extra right. to have. I didn't understand its practicality within her as an individual. Okay. So maybe not super useful as a diagnostic process or like, you know, for the onboarding, but I guess once you have people up and running or maybe something to keep and consider for, for teams that have been around for a while, yeah, you mentioned sure. strengths finders, but other, are there any other ones that, that you take stock in? Oh, you're putting me on the spot now because Sorry. I, do, I do have two or three. And you know what? I will certainly get them to you. We can put them in the show notes of some of the ones I really like. That's great. Yeah. Ones who, who are psychologically, um, who are based in psychological principles rather than just feel good principles. Yeah. Uh, and make sure that they're well documented within, you know, an educational set, setting that, because I mean, there's a lot of them out there and I just like the ones that are, you know, more, more based in psychological principles. We actually only use astrological principles internally. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Okay. Those are great ones. <laughs> In fact, um, it told me that I should make sure that, you know, I call my, my mom tonight. Uh, okay. Awesome. So, I mean, all right, so that's good. So, I mean, basically we have a little bit more um, context on what we might have once we have those, but um, okay. So we've kind of uh, spoken about the superstars, but you know, what about things that go in the other direction? I know it's yeah. not really fun to talk about, but underperforming or yeah. Like what, what do we do when somebody seems like they're, they're falling short of their KPIs? So we've all heard of the sandwich feedback, like the feedback sandwich. And I would like to throw out there that I hate the feedback sandwich. So the feedback sandwich for those of, of uh, our listeners who haven't heard it before is when you start with, you know, the positive, you, you put in the, the opportunistic feedback and then you end on a positive. And that way, you know, you don't ruin the person's day and they try to take it because they know you still love them. And, and at the end of the day, in my, you know, almost two decades of HR experience, what I've realized about the feedback sandwich is that when you give somebody great positivity and then slice in a little bit of, you know, the opportunity feedback of what they need to change and then ended in positivity, all they hear is two ends of positivity. 
And that little piece that you've, you know, put your emotional uh, resources into and having that conversation and wondering how are you going to do it and losing sleep at night because you want to make sure you do it right. That little piece, that little meat that you put in the middle gets completely lost. And so we go on two weeks later and the same issues are happening and there's no change. And we're like, but we had the conversation. Why did nothing change? Nothing changed because we had the conversation and we let 10% of the conversation be about the actual problem and sandwiched it between like two pieces of great feedback. So my, <laughs> my personal belief is at the end of the day, treat other people, treat these conversations the same way you would want to be treated. If you had a uh, an area of opportunity within your own performance that needed to be addressed, how would you want it addressed? And I know for me and for a lot of people that I speak to, they just want people to be straight with them, be fair, be straight, and just give them the information. If we try to sugarcoat it to really at the end of the day to make ourselves feel better, it never has the strength that it needs in order to provide the individual with the proper information about, about how to change their behavior in order to be more successful. Yeah. And that's actually a really interesting perspective on it. Cause I was like, a lot of the times people go into this and try to soften a conversation because in their mind, they're rationalizing that they don't want to hurt that person. But in reality, what you're saying is that it's actually more selfish because you're not having to have the burden of having a tough conversation, having your <laughs> blood pressure rise for all of it. Right. But, um, that's also interesting too. Cause it's like, you know, if you had somebody, you know, if, I think a lot of the times too, and just from experience on our own team too, it's like whenever things get pointed out or like I, I've, you know, there, we had a situation with, uh, with one of our employees a, a long time ago. And basically it was, uh, it was a little bit of an asynchronous situation and we weren't really sure that the hours are being filled up. And basically I was like, Hey, I'm, I'm not really seeing, you know, eight hours a day on this. I don't know what you're saying. And they're like, Oh my God, I'm so glad that you asked me because I felt like I've been stealing time for the past week. And it was like, okay, I was really surprised to hear that. But, you know, I think a lot of these things too, I, I try to think about this, like, um, you know, if, if you're walking around with spinach in your teeth, like you want something to tell you, they wouldn't have to like, you know, <laughs> like dance around the topic. Yeah. You just want to get the spinach out of your teeth. Right. Yeah. Hey, did you, what did you have for lunch? Was it a good lunch? Just tell me I have the spinach. In my teeth. <laughs> exactly. Right. <laughs> just to kind of close things out a little bit, like, you know, there's obviously process to, to kind of keep this going, but like, how do you think about making sure, you know, in between the highs and lows, do you ever think about any sort of process to keep people on track or like, I mean, it's kind of funny. Like a lot of times I think a lot of small business owners, especially when they come from a larger business background, they're, they're super anti, you know, TPS reports and this and that, and maybe to their own detriment, but how do you think about keeping, you know, new hires, old hires, everyone on track as far as hitting their goals? So, I mean, there's, there's a couple different schools of thought and I, the number one advice I can give is what is your communication culture already? Let's build the whole idea of development and you know, performance into what your communication culture is already. Is everybody really independent and kind of just does their own thing and then comes together when need be, maybe monthly, maybe weekly, maybe quarterly, who knows? Let's build our system of development and goal setting into that. Are you already talking with most of your team members or your supervisors and managers talking to most of your team members on a weekly, daily, hourly basis? Let's use that as our jumping off point for our succession and our development plans. Because at the end of the day, if we start building a system for performance and development that goes against what the communication culture already is, it's going to be a fight. But if you're already talking to your people on a regular basis about what their goals are, what their projects are, what are they working on, reflecting back on what we could do differently next time. 
why would we do that again in three months or six months? So if we can build a culture where, you know, our communication is with our supervisors and our teams is on a regular basis, I would even throw it out there. Do we really need an annual performance? Yeah, that's really interesting too. I think it's very uh, hot take <laughs> as they say, but no, that, that makes a lot of sense too. And there's also kind of no one size fits all plan at the end of the day, right? Like, you know, it kind of, um, you know, if you're brushing your teeth every day, you might not have to get a root canal like, <laughs> every, every five years, right? Um, well, and it brings it back to the idea that HR is really about communication. And so right. the annual performance review is really about communication. But if you already have a culture of communication, like those annual performance reviews, they can be redundant. They can feel scary. They can be cringeworthy. If you've built communication into your everyday weekly activities with your team, if they already know what's going on and you're working towards goals and plans, let's stop looking in reverse and let's start looking at development. Because if there's a problem, we're not going to talk about it with them in six months. Let's talk about them today. Okay. Awesome. I think that's a really great place. And like, you know, at the end coming full circle, you know, if you're not, if you're not looking at the past, you can end up looking at the future and end up working towards a better future, which I think is probably <laughs> a good point. To this. All right. So Laura, thank you so much for taking the time for this podcast. If people are interested, like what they hear, what's the best way to get in touch with you? Yeah. So essentialhr.ca is our website. And if you go to essentialhr.ca slash LFGP, you can grab that identify and amplify your employer brand download that we've created for your listeners. Okay. Awesome. Super. Thanks for that. And we are also on LinkedIn. That's the best place to find us. Uh, and we, do, I mean, we have some other channels, but we love LinkedIn. Yeah, actually I love LinkedIn too. I gotta say, <laughs> do we, we threw a little bit of ad budget on this for the, the podcast on Facebook, but I'd say probably the most consistent place that we've been posting on is LinkedIn as well. So if you're, if you're hearing this uh, on LinkedIn, then you know where to find Laura. <laughs> Perfect. All right. Awesome guys. So um, thanks again, Laura, super appreciate it. And for everybody else, we will be back next week at Tuesday, 8 a.m. Eastern on the Law Firm Growth Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Law Firm Growth Podcast. For show notes, free resources, and more, head on over to casefuel.com slash podcast. Looking forward to catching up on the next episode.